2: 2017 by being a pessimist, one of the things you probably would do is you would call up our next guest, John Fraher. He is executive editor for the international government of- division of Bloomberg News he's a perennial in, pessimist well clearly now he is a pessimist because uh, he is responsible for our pessimist guide to 2017. John uh all right tell us uh when you know do we take cover should we build a shelter what what's going to happen
1: well part of the exercise of the pessimist guide is not necessarily a series of predictions but what we're trying to do is encourage readers to to think outside the box wait so, I just
3: can I interrupt you for yeah. one second though uh last year's guide to the pessimistic guide pretty much entirely came true, right? I mean, the base case of Trump becoming president So this time last
1: year it definitely did pay to be a pessimist, yes because we put in front of readers the idea that Brexit could actually happen and actually the most controversial item that we had last year the one that caused most internal debates and arguments as we were debating it was should we put in front of readers the possibility of Donald Trump winning the winning the White House. And it was actually the last thing that we put in because there was so much heated debate about it. We were told this is a joke, it's going to be over by February, it's going to make us look stupid... But sometimes outlandish things do happen, as the last uh, as the last twelve months has taught us. Did you
2: make the correlation between Donald Trump being elected president and the Dow being up more than ten percent and the S and P up more than seven and a half percent? I
1: think that bit we sort of we did, we, we didn't quite uh, fa- factor that in. But again, it goes to show you that all of these events have have unintended consequences, and what we're encouraging people to do is is keep an open mind, not only about the events that can happen, but how markets will react to it as well.
3: Okay, so John, here we have our Krista Ball. You can- look into it what's going to happen next year if you're a pessimist
1: if you're if you're a pessimist um well one of the things one of the sort of the threads that runs through uh, the coverage for example is this idea of 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 america pulling back uh from from the rest of the world um and uh, one of the things that we've thought about is what if on the morning of donald trump's inauguration he decides to label china a currency manipulator over twitter now it actually nearly happened last Friday night, believe it or not, again, which ca- causing another sort of range of you know huge debate with me and, and my co my my sort of fellow pessimists. Uh, I got one email on a Friday night saying we need to get this thing published now because this could happen. So uh, that's one thing to think about: Trump starting a trade war uh, with China. But then the flip side of that, and, and I think a really important issue that. Donald Trump may well be thinking about, and certainly people in Washington are thinking about it, is this North Korea angle. So there are people in South Korea who say the whole notion of North Korea building a missile that could hit the West Coast, on which you could fit a miniaturized nuclear device, is not that outlandish at all. Which then raises the question for Donald Trump, okay, fine, you want to go hard on China on trade, but if you're really genuinely worried about North Korea, you need Beijing on board. You need Beijing to help you deal with this uh, with this rogue regime. So again, one of the things that comes has that out, worked
2: in the past.
1: Uh, well, it's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, China is sort of acts as North Korea's protector, and certainly they are very reluctant to be seen to be helping America out on the North Korea issue. But it just goes to show you how all of these issues are interrelated. If you do want to go hard on China trade, you also need to think at the back of your mind that you might need China to help you out. Uh, with North Koreans.
3: Well, and, and talking about China, if there were a trade war, uh, I believe in this pessimist's guide, you talked about a potential recession in China that could result from this, right?
1: That's right. And you have to remember all at the same time that this is happening, there's a big leadership uh, reshuffle happening in China this this time next year. So the, the, the standing committee, which sort of sits on the very apex of Chinese power, is all going to be reshuffled. Xi Jinping and his prime minister will stay but everyone else will probably get rotated out. And of course, Chinese politics is very opaque, but you can bet that there's going to be a lot of people in Beijing are going to be focusing on the succession issue when perhaps they should be spending more time on keeping the economy going. And they'll also be dealing with a U.S. president who, you know, is going to be unorthodox at the very least.
2: Well, we're going to speak uh, later on in the program with Arthur Kroeber. He is a founding partner at uh, Gavekal Dragonomics, also a fellow at the Brookings Qinggiao Center for Public Policy. He'll be talking about China later on in the program. Can we just go to Germany for a moment? Yeah. To, what's, uh, what's the prognosis? What's the pessimist say there?
1: So the pessimist scenario there, I mean, Angela Merkel, of course, is on, is on, is on the back, back foot big time. Uh, in germany she's facing her own populist insurgency there she's got her own elections in september in september of next year so one of the scenarios we put out there is that she loses she loses that election now we're not saying that the populists will come to power but she could be so her her authority could could be so heavily by this election, that she's forced to stand down. And Angela Merkel has been the glue that's kept Europe together, really, for the last decade. Whether it's Greece or whether it's the refugee crisis, so her, that in and of itself, her leaving would be a hugely destabilizing event for event for Europe.
3: And then turning back to the U.S., uh, how about sort of social backdrop in the United States with Donald Trump as the president? I mean, could there be a sort of radical movement that evolves and what would the effect be there?
1: So we are we have looked at that. We could you could see a sort of a a coalition of the left or the center left uh, in the streets. Also, we talk about, uh, for example, Californian billionaire, liberal Californian billionaires, deciding to group together to sort of form a, a resistance movement. If you I love like, that the that's a group. That's yeah. an entire
3: group. Is Californian billionaires, yeah, liberal and, billionaires. And
1: then what happens in Congress? Yeah. So I mean, there is. Well, the- I'm just curious.
2: When they found that group, are they going to be subject to the same kinds of conditions at a foreign state? Would be subject to if they want government contracts for any of their products or services. That's
1: a very good question. I mean, it's called Calixit, right? Calixit yes. is, this, uh, is 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 this uh, idea that's sort of been brewing uh, brewing since the election. Um, but one of the things to think about as well is if you did get if you did get broad social unrest or deep unhappiness with Trump's uh, domestic um, a- agenda, what would that do to unity in Congress when he tries to get a fiscal a fiscal stimulus through? So something that's worth connecting those dots together. And I'm not saying this, this pessimist guy will, you know, is predicting the future, although it has, a, it has a pretty good track record at this point. But it's encouraging readers to think about all of these different issues and how they could link together.
3: Um, Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin and President-elect Donald Trump, new best friends forever. What's going to happen here?
1: I think it's pretty interesting, actually. I mean, if you look at it, that's certainly the narrative, has been the narrative uh, through the campaign. But who then would have thought that Donald Trump would have packed his cabinet with, with former Goldman Sachs? Uh, employees. So, in theory, you know, Donald Trump has said he wants a better relationship with Putin. But you know, Putin himself is a very hard to predict guy who will only act in, in Russia's self interest. So that bromance, it could be a short lived one. Uh, but one thing to think about is that if if Trump does carry through on his pledge to sort of really question how much Europe spends on defense, he could, he, could, he could basically give Angela Merkel and European leaders a very difficult choice to make. Do we decide to ramp up spending on, on defense, good for defense companies, um, or without America's support, do we have to learn to do deals with uh, Vladimir Putin? In Eastern Europe. Do we have to accept the fact that Vladimir Putin is serious about the fact that Ukraine is in, is in his sphere of influence? Is is Vladimir Putin? Do we have to recognize the fact that his sphere of influence does indeed go right up to NATO, NATO's borders? Those could be very difficult decisions for Angela Merkel to make.
3: This is the segment that I have been waiting for. Uh, this is a question that we have been talking about a lot. Uh, with all of the populist uprisings that we've seen around the world, what does this potential civil unrest, and in some places actual, what effect does it have on markets? With us to answer that question is Irene Fennell Honigman, adjunct professor of international affairs at Columbia University, and Nick Colas, chief market strategist at Convergix. Um, Nick, I want to start with you. So far, we saw a bit of a reaction. We saw a three-month reaction, three-week reaction to Brexit. We saw a three-day reaction to Trump, and we saw a three-minute reaction to Italy's referendum vote. Do markets just not care?
4: You know, as you look at the data back to the 1920s and look at the whole cadence of history from the Great Depression to now, I think the data shows us that the markets anticipate a lot of this change long before it actually occurs. So if you look at the Great Depression, the S&P 500 and its predecessors were down 70% from 1928 to 1932. And then we had this very long wave of social unrest afterward, culminating in World War II. If you look at the financial crisis, down 36% back in 2000. 2008 and we've had this kind of rolling set of crises ever since so i think the bottom line is markets to some degree create the conditions <clears throat> for this unrest and to some degree anticipate what it's going to mean so by the time it actually occurs a lot of it's baked into investor expectations
2: irene give us your thoughts um.
5: I, I basically uh, agree with uh, with Nick. I think also the situation in Europe is the markets did react very strongly and negatively uh, in two thousand and ten that march may period of enormous incertitude about Greece potential default. Once it became clear in the next year or so that this was constantly ongoing and that every crisis was awful in and of itself and yet did not necessarily mean that the euro was failing or that Europe was failing, but that in a way, unfortunately, it was constantly push the can down the road or muddled through. So this seems to be again the case. Italy, there is built-in cynicism, built-in skepticism. We have looked at 60 different governments, of which Berlusconi was the longest in Italy since World War II. Uh, The assumption was that this probably would go as a no against the constitutional changes that Renzi wanted to impose and were really not understood. Uh, The thing that is to me also very interesting is, for example, in France, uh, right now, we've seen France go through all sorts of gyrations, uh, with Hollande uh, deciding he will not present his candidacy again with a new uh, uh, candidate, Emmanuel Macron, former finance minister, creating a new party, with Filon unexpectedly coming to the forefront of a Juppert center-right. Yet. There doesn't really seem to be an impact from that. Everyone is sort of a wait-and-see. And I think this wait-and-see mood is kind of everywhere. Um, we also, and, and again, I, I certainly agree, we have a lot of it basically baked in. Uh, there will be volatility. And as long as some of the economic fundamentals don't look that dramatic, we'll just assume we don't really know where the political situation is going right now.
3: Okay, so just go sticking in Europe, one of the biggest wild cards that a lot of people talk about for next year is... the status of the euro and the fact that a lot of anti-European Union factions in Europe have been gaining power. I mean, that is not priced into the market right now, the breakup of the eurozone, correct?
5: Uh, That is correct, because I don't think it will occur. I think, again, the fascinating thing about it is just like in Greece, uh, they absolutely hated what Brussels or Europe was imposing on them, but they did not want to get out of the Eurozone and come back to the drachma. In Italy, it seems largely to be the same thing. There is in the uh, northern faction, etc., in some of the very extreme factions, more of an anti-Euro, anti-EU sentiment, but fundamentally, the Italian electorate does not want to get out of the Euro and certainly return to the lira and its just so I, I think there's a very bizarre paradox between people, oddly enough, not really wanting to break things apart, yet being very unhappy with the way things are.
4: Nick Yeah, I was actually looking at the data back to, say, World War II, which is an interesting much more violent analog, obviously, to what's going on in Europe now. And for U.S. stocks, it wasn't really all that bad. 1940s S&P returned down 11%, 1941 down 13%. And that was it. After that, defense spending and all that stimulus ended up having the equity markets up between 19 and 25%, uh, with uh, 1945 being up 36% when the victory was actually won. So looking at a much more extreme version of unrest in Europe, and you see U.S. equities actually did pretty well. So
2: what's the trade, Nick Colas? Everyone seems to be pessimistic, offering up all these dire scenarios. You're telling me that the analysis says you can make some money here.
4: Yeah, the bottom line is markets climb that cliched wall of uncertainty, and we have. So
2: any particular sector, any specific idea, or do you just do you know an S and P index?
4: No, we're seeing you know among our clients, we're seeing a ton of rotation. I mean, like I haven't seen in the last five years from tech. Out of tech, into financials first and foremost, and then industrials and healthcare, pretty much in that order. If you look at ETF flows over the past month, $9 billion, $9 billion into industrials, and then between two and three into, uh, sorry, into financials, and industrials and healthcare is 2 to $3 billion, tech negative draws, for example.
3: Irene, I'd love to get your perspective on at what point uh, in history civil unrest has, if it has, ever bled into markets.
5: Uh, that, I think, is really uh, interestingly enough, often there's, there's really not a lot of correlation. Uh, I mean, yes, we, we can certainly look at uh, at even, as Nick mentioned during the, the Great Depression, there seemed to be a, sort of a, a slow revival. Uh, The issue is right now uh, and what we've seen basically in in many decades is that the euro-dollar parity has not been that – we have not gone through that many disruptive moments. And even when the crisis in Europe were occurring, we were not really going through a currency crisis. And interestingly enough, in 1992 – In September, after there was a uh, near no vote on the Maastricht referendum, where there actually was a currency crisis and most of the currency had to drop out of actually the parity bans within the the European Union what would become the Eurozone, Interestingly enough, that did not necessarily lead to a political crisis. So the interesting issue is that we don't really have a set correlation. The one thing that I'm still quite concerned about because I don't know how it plays out or how it will finally play out long term is Brexit. Uh, whether that will have longer impact on uh, on banks, on the we, UK banking we gotta, sector,
2: Irene, we got to leave it there. But thank you very much, Professor Irene Fennell Honigman, adjunct professor, International Affairs, Columbia University, and our thanks also to Nick Colas, chief market strategist at ConvergeX. Well, imagine that you wanted to know everything that you could about China. You would probably call Arthur Krober. He is a founding partner of Gavical Dragonomics, and he joins us now. He's also the author of the new book entitled China's Economy, What Everyone Needs to Know. Arthur, thank you very much for being with us. So what do we need to know about China right now?
6: Well, I think two things. First of all, uh, Economic uh, growth is uh, reasonably stable, isn't going to stay so for the next year, because the government is is heading towards a major political event, a party congress about a year from now, and they're going to want to have very stable, calm growth between now and then to set the stage for that. Then the second thing is that um, I think President Trump has thrown a wild card into that by getting collected. And uh, he has the potential to to make things a little bit more volatile by uh, throwing some trade sanctions uh, at China. And so it'll be uh, interesting to see how the Chinese respond to that if if it in fact occurs.
3: Arthur, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about how a potential trade war uh, would negatively impact the U.S. What about China? How much does China have to lose uh, by this type of trade argument?
6: well they have a fair amount because it's a it's a very trade dependent economy they have a trade surplus that's about 5% of gdp and they do rely heavily on exports but i think when you look at uh, at this it seems pretty clear that the us has a lot more to lose uh, from a trade war uh, with china than china does just a simple simple example one of the biggest exports that china sends to the united states is the iphone which is not a product that ultimately is uh, from a chinese company it's from an american company so if you Impose tariffs across the board, you'll be hurting American companies at least as much as Chinese companies, and maybe more so.
3: At this point, I mean, given the rhetoric that we've seen uh, from <clears throat> President-elect Trump, uh, will what will it take for China to respond with a, a sort of heavy hand? Because so far, they've taken a pretty light approach in response.
6: Well, I think on the economic stuff, they're just waiting to see what he actually does. He, he said all kinds of things, but we don't know what he will actually do in terms of economic sanctions or tariffs or whatever until he takes office. So I think the Chinese are playing cool on that. What we saw over the weekend was this uh, conversation between uh, Trump and the president of Taiwan. Yeah, the Chinese are playing that uh, very cool. Also, again, I think they're taking the calculation that What Trump Trump does as president-elect when he's still really a private citizen may be somewhat different than what he does when he's actually in office. So I think they're just going to wait and see.
2: Arthur, if you got a call from uh, the CEO of a major U.S. (laughs) industrial company or indeed someone in the United States that uh, has a product or a service that they'd like to sell into China, what would you be telling them about how to navigate the business world right now and what kinds of insights can you offer to get a deal done?
6: Well. First of all, I think you have to understand whether you're entering into a a market that's growing and a market that's stable. So China has a lot of different markets, and they're behaving differently. The key is to have products and services that focus on the needs of what we would call upscale consumers. And these are households that have at least $20,000 in income each year. This is the fastest growing part of the population. So if you're selling higher end products that that appeal to these affluent consumers, you're doing well. And is that in major cities?
2: Because, you know, when you think about a big country, it can be very daunting to go and do business there. But if you narrow it down to specific cities, then you can maybe do a little bit better.
6: Well, but I think it's important to understand that this this, uh, population of affluent consumers exists not just in two or three cities, but probably in about 50 or 60 cities sprinkled up and down the coast. So I think you you do need to have a broader strategy. But the, the other thing is if you're just entering China, don't go in with a grand idea. Go in with something small something manageable that you can control and then scale it up gradually over time. The biggest mistake that companies make when they go into China is they think it's a giant market and they're going to take it by storm and, and they have a grand plan and, and that usually comes to grief.
3: Arthur, uh, China's yuan has been sort of in the backdrop this year, but there still is the possibility for a very disorderly uh, devaluation of the currency. There still are a lot of uh, outflows, uh, capital outflows from China. How worried are you about this?
6: I'm not worried in the short term. Uh, If you look at the recent capital outflow numbers, basically they're not real outflows. They reflect the fact that China's holdings of things like the Euro and the Yen have gone down in value as the dollar has rallied over the last uh, uh, couple of months. So we don't really see strong capital outflows now. And the other thing that we've seen is that when outflows do occur, the Chinese are very effective at imposing capital controls to keep things under wraps. So I think for the next few months, not a big worry. The worry I do have is, let's say we have another six or eight months of the dollar rising very rapidly, that'll create a lot of incentives for Chinese investors to switch from renminbi assets to dollar assets and move money out. But we're not there yet.
3: Arthur Krober, thank you so much for being with us. Arthur Krober, founding partner of Gavacal Dragonomics, a China-focused economic research consultancy in Beijing.
2: And joining us here in studio is Shelly Banjo, a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, to tell us all about shopping at an Amazon store. I thought that was only going to be online, but apparently, eventually, I'm going to be walking in and out of a store, not having to take out my wallet, and somehow Amazon will still be involved.
7: Yeah, you just walk in, put the things in your pocket or your cart or your bag, and walk out. And the way that it was built was that it 's all sensor technology, artificial intelligence, basically they have little sensors on all the on all the items, and they can tell when you 're buying them and, and then they credit it to your Amazon prime account and charge you
3: okay the, you know it 's just like Amazon already dominated retailers on the online space and now just to sort of take some salt and rub it in those wounds they 're going to have a brick and mortar place that 's run better than the ones that are in existence already i mean How much do retailers have to fear from this sort of Amazonian invasion of their, you know, bread and butter?
7: I think a lot because, you know, Amazon has done so well at so many things. They've also not done very well at at many things. but, But this is something, you know, just focusing on checkout, for example. Checkout is something that all these big, traditional retailers have struggled with for decades and no one's been able to kind of figure it out. And here comes Amazon basically being like, ha we have solved your biggest brick and mortar's biggest problems just like that with our first store.
3: But so this is my other question. How is Amazon able to do this? I mean, if you go into CVS or if you go into some of these other stores, they try these self-checkout counters that often are counterproductive because you end up having as many people standing by them to fix any technical glitches as you actually do uh, just letting it to work, you know. But how is this going to work?
7: Yeah, I think that it'll remain to be seen what happens with Amazon. Like, it could completely fail, and that would probably be fine with Amazon, which is the difference between some of these traditional brick-and-mortar retailers. Um, Walmart, for example, launched this thing called Scan and Go a couple years ago, where you would literally take your cell phone and scan, have to scan each item of each product, and for that's fine if you're going into a CVS. But when you go to Walmart, you pick up a hundred items in one big swoop. Um, It didn't work well for people so they scrapped that and uh, you know, people have been uh, struggling with this
2: Why does Amazon want to do this?
7: Amazon wants grocery for sure. They need to learn grocery. It's this huge $1 trillion yeah, people dollar market. Like, do they
2: really like going to the grocery store? Is that, I mean, they've said, okay, so they want to be able to supply both because a lot of grocery stores, for example, Kroger, you can go to the store, you can pick it up. It'll all be boxed for you. They've got an internet connection program already in place.
7: Yeah, I don't think it's ever going to be Amazon's going to replicate Walmart with these 200,000 square foot you know, huge super centers for grocery. They're going to do it their own way. You know, they have, they might have a few hundred of these stores with, um, you know, just the certain amount of items that they can actually learn about how people uh, shop for groceries. Because right now Amazon's really good at a lot of things, but grocery is not one of them. And it's something they've, they've been trying to do for a decade now and have not managed to crack.
3: So how do you avoid people stealing things? I don't understand this tracking sensor. Do you have like a little tracker on you that you have to carry around that's connected to your cell phone? That I mean, I, I'm just trying to understand this.
7: Yeah, I think every item has some sort of tracker sensor thing in it. And so if you walk out of your of the store without it, you know, having, you know, been linked to your smartphone, then, you know, maybe that'll send off bells or whistles or something like Can you that. you
3: imagine if the whole place <laughs> just starts screaming, like all the bells and whistles coming from every corner of the But building. this
2: is supposed to be, I thought, exclusively for Amazon Prime customers. So they're going to know exactly who you are almost before you get into the store
7: when you walk in you are supposed to turn your phone on you know kind of the store mode that actually a lot of retailers have already and so that knows who you are and then it can touch and you know can can sense what you're putting into your cart or your bag then as you walk out it kind of all rings up where's the first store going to be the first store is in Seattle on Amazon's kind of Downtown campus there. And so it's already been, it's already up and running for employees, and employees have been using it. So they made this kind of big announcement yesterday that they're going to open it in early January to the public. So we'll see, you know, kind of what happens. And if it goes well, they'll. You know they'll, they'll they'll open more, and they're also testing out all sorts of different concepts. And so I don't think this is the end of brick and mortar for Amazon yet.
2: Well, when you come out of the store, they can drop the products on you that you forgot to buy. On the, exactly, using <laughs> or products,
7: send a little right? drone after yeah, you man. to follow you. Yeah.
2: I got to say though, stock is uh, is up. Stock uh, up seven dollars right now. Uh, seven hundred and sixty six dollars for a share of Amazon. It's up more than three percent since they announced this uh, this new foray. Can you imagine
3: a drone going after you? You forgot vegetables. You didn't have enough. vegetables. <laughs> Vegetables. Shelly Banjo, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering the retail sector. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
2: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox.
3: I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state